0: Welcome to the first episode of Allow Me to Explain. We are your hosts. Uh, My name is Amos Chapman. And I'm Brent Pinera. This is a podcast where every episode we take a controversial or seemingly hyperbolic statement and we try to explain the reasoning behind it. Yeah. And Brent, this week, what statement are we going to
1: be defending? That American democracy is a failed experiment. A botched experiment. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So the reasoning behind the podcast, the reason why we wanted to do this is because we think the best way to, you know, explore some of the topics relating to us, you know, as young male Americans. Millennials. Millennials, yeah. <laughs> Snowflakes. Absolutely. Is to, uh, is to, you know, take statements that other people might find, you know, off-putting or at first might seem controversial and to try to put them on trial, to interrogate them and to really see if we can understand and explain the reasoning
1: behind them. Because I feel like a lot of times in today's society, people reject ideas uh, based on you know social understanding, like yeah. if you were to go up to somebody on the street and say, You know, American democracy is a failed experiment, uh, i I doubt that they would take kindly to that. I think first, they would say, Why are you talking to me, random stranger? True and then, of
0: course, they would disagree with you, you know, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> so, yeah, and I think in particular with this episode, um, it's something that we both have been thinking a lot about recently. Um, I think the more I think about and observe our system of government, the more I realize that it is, you know, more or less, you know,
1: not operating the way that it was intended to. Absolutely. It's in a state of dysfunction. Yeah. And what I thought really provoked me to, you know, talk about this and all the different issues with our our current state of democracy in the United States, I went into the polls this year Mm -hmm. and I, I went into, you know, to vote and I thought, okay, I believe that our system will come up with something, will come up with someone that... Would fulfill what American needs. We need someone now to fix things. You know, a lot of people got behind the Gary Johnson banner as a third-party candidate. A lot of people got behind Bernie Sanders. A lot um, of people, myself included, got behind you know the Jill Stein bandwagon, <laughs> mostly because her music is
0: great. I'm not sure about her opinions, but oh gosh, <laughs> it really is pretty terrible. <laughs> no, like you know, I, I th- had some degree of, and I and we sh- we should say for the record that we decided on this topic and it's something we've been thinking about long before
1: the results of this election came in Oh absolutely yeah. absolutely this is not really prompted by the fact that now Donald Trump is our president-elect. It's a, a convenience you know it, it is very convenient it makes our, our our position a little bit easier uh, to defend <laughs> but you know uh, people voted for him the way our primary system works and the way our general election system works he is now our president. And, you know, we've all come to accept that in, in some form or fashion.
0: Yeah. But, but but the fact that he's our president, you know, whether that actually reflects some kind of consensus among the people or whether that reflects some kind of, you know,
1: dysfunction in our system, I think
0: that's what we're here to sort of litigate and talk about. Absolutely, so.
1: absolutely. Because I think there, there are a lot more problems than people seem to realize with our system as it is today. Uh, so, I mean, like, first of all, we want to give a language disclaimer. Um we, we will sometimes... be speaking
0: primarily in English, although I might occasionally dip into Mandarin. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I mean, we might occasionally, uh, in the course of making our arguments, resort to the use of expletives. Like, fuck. Yes. Or, darn you. Or, you know. That's that. No, not as intense. Okay. No, well. I
1: feel like people would...
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, if you are a, a small child, you probably should not be listening to this podcast, both because you might not understand the complex issues that we're deconstructing, and because we might use some bad words. Yeah. Um, and maybe you're just one of those, you know, really well-adjusted children who who understands that "quote unquote" cursing is just, you know. Uh, a form of punctuation in our language. And that language evolves over time and doesn't really mean
1: anything. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, and if you are talking to talk primary, to, yeah. our primary audience. You're children. Yeah, of course. You know, so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> our future.
0: Our future, you know. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, uh, with that said, I think we're just going to get into the topic and start talking about all of the reasons why, you know, our, we actually believe and are trying to defend the argument that our system of government is a failed experiment.
1: Absolutely. And I think
0: it's worth saying you know, off the top that we need to like define failure a little bit. Um, so Brent, what do you understand failure as meaning in this context?
1: In this context, I think that failure is uh, something's inability to function within its, its purpose. Okay. It's not able to achieve its intended goal. And I feel like we—it's it, pretty easy to prove in in today's society that our perspective, the Americans' perspective of democracy—which I think we should also note—our country is the first country of all time to try this sense of equality and democracy. Now, of course, democracy has existed since ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Re- representative democracy has ex- existed, you know, in in Rome at its, you know, at the peak of the empire. But really, the idea of equality of voice, the clash of ideas and ultimately representing what Hamilton says is the sense of the people uh, is really what we're talking about in this podcast. Now,
0: but before any of you pedantic assholes write in and try to correct us on this issue, we understand our system of government is a republic and not a democracy. True. We took government in high school and college. Uh, We're using democracy here as a shorthand to describe our system of government in which the people elect their leaders. Yes. Um, But, you know, Brent, you said earlier that... Failure means being in a system of uh, being in a state of dysfunction, right? Our system is not operating the way it was intended to. So, like, what do you think our system of government was intended to do? Like, how do what what are our barometers for failure or
1: success? Uh, I think how effectively we represent the people's needs and okay. how effectively we represent the United States as a whole and the clash of ideas, etc. Yeah, and
0: and I think I would add to that. Um, I think our system of government would work if it equally represented the people's interests, which is, of course, impossible, right? But at least a majority of the people and not just a plurality, which we will get into when we talk about the Electoral College. Let's talk about the Electoral College. Let's talk about it. Um, So basically, the Electoral College is sort of the first place that you have to start when talking about how our system has ceased to, you know, operate in the way that it was intended at least to. on a federal level yeah okay yeah. so let's talk about that for a second like why was the electoral college set up in the first place why don't we have just like a direct democracy
1: i mean it, it's really outlined pretty clearly in the federalist papers when uh hamilton was writing under the moniker publius uh it's it's uh <laughs> yeah, i know it's a ridiculous thing about
0: pubes <laughs>
1: <laughs> true true <laughs> but you know he says in federalist the federalist paper uh 68 he talks a lot about how the electoral college was set into place so that we wouldn't have majority factions or, you know, mm-hmm. mob rule controlling the federal government, controlling the way in which it interacts with the people and the policies that it implements. Yeah. So
0: basically, the reasoning behind it is that, like, any particular faction at some point, if it congregated enough interest behind its message, could eventually achieve a majority, and then they could hold everybody else hostage to their will. Yeah. Fifty-one percent right? versus the forty-nine percent. Exactly. Right. Um, but the problem is that like what we have now more or less is not so much the tyranny of the majority, which the founders wanted to avoid, but the nope. tyranny of the plurality, which I would argue is just as bad, you know, True. and, you know, in a system where the president can win by virtue of having more electoral votes, even though they haven't won the popular vote is an example of that.
1: Absolutely. And I think this has been a really kind of hot button issue recently. I mean, I've seen on my Facebook feed. buttons have been very hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, several, I've seen several people post petitions to, uh, rep- Appeal the Electoral College, mm. and and I understand that that impulse. Have you seen these
0: petitions for like asking the electoral voters to like vote for Clinton instead of Trump? Have you seen these? No. Oh yeah, like a lot of my liberal friends, and I say that like I'm not one. I've been sharing like on Facebook this these petitions um, to try to like get electoral voters to like change their minds.
1: Yeah, and they, they they view the Electoral College as this corrupt organization that is you know being paid off by politicians or, you know, something absurd uh, like that. But I, I feel like we've gotten so far away from the original intent of the Electoral College that trying yeah. to really judge it uh, based on any type of modern perspective of how voting should happen yeah. uh, is a little bit ill-conceived.
0: Yeah, and indeed these petitions, as like, totally like wrong-headed and denialistic as I think they are, do strike at... What was sort of the original purpose of the Electoral College, which is to act as kind of a filter on the people's ability to appoint a demagogue into office, someone who is just a populist who's appealing to them. Even Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist Paper 68 that talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may suffice to elevate someone to a state office, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the confidence of the whole union. So basically Alexander Hamilton and James Madison echo this opinion, sure. envisioned a system where the electoral delegates would exercise some discretion, right? Yes. So they were you know, more or less more capable of deciding who the president should be than the people. Um, he also said that the electors chosen in each state will be, you know, put in this college that they will be more divided from and less exposed to what he called the heats and ferments of the people. Right, but that's not really how the system works anymore. The, the way the founding fathers envisioned the electoral college would operate only makes sense if you actually think that delegates could vote in an unpledged way according to their personal discretion. Yeah, but that's which, not really which what is happens. Not realistic in any way, yeah. shape, or form. Like over the past, you know, century at least, ninety-nine per, at least recently, ninety-nine percent of electoral delegates are pledged and vote in a way that reflects the vote of their state.
1: So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think we should definitely talk about the winner-take-all system.
0: We should, yeah. So basically, and this is this is something that I really have a problem with. I mean, I'm sympathetic to people who want to abolish the Electoral College, although I think that's sort of short-sighted, and they ha- most people who argue for that haven't, you know, given any, like, serious alternatives to it. But one serious problem that I think we can identify with the Electoral College system is that with the exceptions of two states, which I think are Iowa and New Hampshire. Yeah. I'm not even going to check my facts on that. I think I'm right. They have proportional systems whereby each candidate will get like a percentage of the electoral voters. Yeah, or which directly, it directly reflects how many people voted for them. Yeah, for that, exactly. But, but like all of the other states. Have a winner take all system. So if you win the popular vote by a slight plurality, not even a majority, you can get all yeah, of the delegates. Like even from half that a state. percent.
1: Even half a percent. They yeah. they you get all of the delegates, even though you didn't necessarily win legitimately all of those delegates.
0: So, so so when we have races that are as close on the presidential level as the race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump yeah. or back in two thousand between Gore and Bush, right? The winner take all system really benefits people who just win on the smallest margins. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think means that you often end up with presidents being elected to the highest office who don't really have a mandate from the people.
1: No, definitely not. I, I definitely think that and that's also led to, you know, other things like such as swing states. Yeah. That's a that's a huge deal. I, I know. And it's it's really crazy to me that somehow, you know, a lot of states are kind of locked. Like you look you look at Texas, Texas is gonna be red. Like, so so Brent, it Wyoming, is that a big state? I mean, in comparison to, you know, Texas, California, Alaska, you know, any of those major, major sure. states that yeah. provide a lot of delegates. In California, that, a really
0: big state, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There was, a, according to like 2010 census poll data, Wyoming actually has three times as much weight in terms of the outcome of presidential elections than California does. Which is absurd. I mean, there's an argument to be made there, though. Sure. I mean, I'm not trying to be unreasonable, but if
1: you look at it in the broader context, like which states should have the most pull in the election cycle? It seems to me the most reasonable answer to that question is the states that have the most population. Yeah, because their government policies typically affect them the most. Because they have more people.
0: Yeah, and I and, mean, th- and this, this, actually, this actually matters, right? Because let's say you're still hung up on this theoretical argument that the Electoral College is like an important filter on the will of the people. What you end up with, because the Electoral College and its delegates no longer have any real discretion, they're just pledged, is a system in which... You know, the uh, decision that's made about who is going to be president is essentially based on like super arbitrary variables. True. Yeah, absolutely. Which, like, why is that better than something that just purely reflects the popular vote?
1: I I don't see any reason as to why that would be better. Yeah, I don't see any reason either.
0: And I think one of the reasons why it's not better is because it tends to depress voter turnout. You know, like unless you happen to be in one of the swing states that has a disproportionate influence on the outcome of an election, you have less of a reason to participate.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely true. I mean, that, that seems to be the argument among most of my peers who say that they don't vote is that they don't feel like their vote matters. This
0: is like, I mean, low voter turnout has always been a problem in our country, particularly in presidential elections. But I think that for me, the one of the most important barometers of whether our like system of democratic government is working is whether voters feel enfranchised and whether they feel like they actually have agency, a reason to go to the polls and vote. And if you don't live in a swing state and given the winner-take-all system, if you live in a state, you know, and you're not a part of one of the major parties or the
1: majority party, you have you're even less inclined to offer your vote. And I would 100 percent agree with that because you know, the entire purpose of voting is for individuals in any given state in order to, you know, state their opinion and, and actually participate in the election process yeah. so we have a, a, you know, an office that's been elected by the people for the people. And this is like, I'm a, I'm a Democrat registered
0: living in Texas and I feel like I have very little incentive to vote given our current system. Now, a lot of people, you know, give me crap for that, you know. They give me shit because they're like, well, you're I'm not one voting. Of those people. Yeah, and I deservedly so. I actually, for the record, tried to vote in the last election and uh missed the registration deadline by 1 day, which is my own fault. I voted, so. Uh the fact that Donald Trump is president is something you can officially blame on me at this point. <laughs> but um, Absolutely. Uh, like it's worth, I'm totally comfortable with that. It, it's worth <laughs> saying that there are like alternatives to the system we have. Now, like if the electoral Delegates were divided up in a way that was proportional to the way citizens voted in a given state, I would have way more of an incentive to vote. Because I would actually think that, you know, I could contribute to the amount of delegates that were being given to the Democratic candidate. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I personally am, am not a Democrat. Uh, I voted for Hillary Clinton in this last election. Yeah, you did. Uh, because Donald Trump is terrible. <laughs> and I, I don't care what anybody else says objectively even if and this is not even on just like oh he's a racist oh you know he's a terrible sexist person like not even on that basis like if you look at his hundred-day plan it's, it's absolutely absurd it's a great like, the, the things that he wants to propose and do just defy economics it's really interesting to me that you know i, I consider myself to be an independent uh, i really hate the two-party system we will get into that a little later i believe we will um but i personally try to take an objective view uh, looking at an individual candidate's policies and evaluating them and how I think they'll affect the United States. I like how you say that as
0: if I am just entirely subjective and partisan.
1: I mean, it's sure. true. Yeah. Sorry, okay. well, whatever. Uh, right. we'll move it. <laughs> <fast. laughs> Maybe an unfair characterization. No, definitely. I mean, you're, you're obviously not that way. I mean, no, we're, having, no. we're having this conversation, you know, and I and I feel like that in and of itself. And it's
0: worth mentioning that like there's a dimension to this conversation because Brent and I are not necessarily members of the same party. We disagree on a lot of issues and have you know talked about them at length. But I think what we can both agree on is that the winner-take-all system is problematic because it really disenfranchises people, it discourages them to participate in the voting process. And even if you don't think a proportional system would work, whereby each party gets a percentage according to the popular vote of delegates from a certain state, we could use like a system that's more or less uh, what a lot of parliamentary governments have, particularly the UK, where you vote in terms of like the order of your preference for yeah. candidates. There's been a lot of evidence that that would actually improve.
1: It's extremely voter effective because yeah. you know when people provide their vote, it's not like a be all end all like this person yes. over another person because you know each individual candidate is not going to advocate your specific ideals perfectly and when the outcome of election of the election comes
0: down to you know the margins you know it makes sense for us to list our priorities you know i would say if i were to vote according to that metric in the last election that like ideally i would want hillary clinton to be president i would also accept below her maybe a gary johnson you know Jill Stein, I would feel like I put it at the end of the list, even maybe below Trump. I don't know how. I,
1: I don't know. When her. you say that quantitative easing is a magic trick, I can't take you seriously. I mean, I'm I'm an, I'm an economics major. Have you seen
0: that video where David Blaine just does a lot of quantitative easing? It's pretty impressive.
1: <laughs> I have not. Just okay. send me that. You should. Link. I will. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> send it out to the interweb. De- definitely. <laughs> I just think that there 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 is inherently a problem with the idea of just electing one individual person. In my personal opinion, I really, really like that system, yeah, and I'm basically. sure it comes with its own flaws, but I feel like those flaws are substantially less problematic than the current system that we have.
0: So let's, I mean, to, to to sort of recap the problems with the Electoral College, you have a system whereby a candidate can win a very narrow plurality in a state and take all of their delegates, right? And if you were to multiply that across a lot of different states, you'll end up with a candidate for president who doesn't have a mandate from the people, right?
1: Definitely not. It
0: doesn't have to be a pure popular election system, right? But there's a lot of room for compromise in between the uh, a direct democracy and the system we have now.
1: Yeah. It,
0: like, you don't necessarily have to have mob rule or representative system. But the problem is, like, and this is the reason why we're arguing that the our system of government, American democracy, is failing as an experiment because... Those kind of reforms that we are proposing that could be made to, left to our college would require a constitutional amendment, which, you know, to go back to another kind of dysfunction or, you know, antiquated aspect of our system,
1: is super hard to do. You can't just, like, change the constitution. And I mean, I feel like there are definitely good reasons there, for that. We don't want the government to be able to change things so rapidly without having any check. But at the same time, I think our system right now is so antiquated. That it is making it a lot harder than it should be, and it's making it difficult for, especially our generation, to have a voice, to and it, actually, yeah. to to actually change the way in which we view elections, to change our system, and actually provide it with a better system.
0: Now, and obviously, like a certain you know party's feeling about the electoral college, whether it's good or bad, changes from election to election. Like oh, the Democratic should. Party is now decrying the failures of the electoral college in a way that they were you know, as well, back in 2000, right? Yeah, and when they, I mean, on they one. definitely cherished it when Obama got elected. Sure, I totally agree. But I think that's something that, like, most Americans can agree on is that the system could be improved. It could be. But even, like, given the consensus around changing the electoral college, the odds of being able to, like, amend the Constitution in a way that actually would reform it are just incredibly, you know, hard
1: to overcome. It, it is. It, it is. just requires a supermajority of a majority of states. Uh, which, which you know, and that is a whole other conversation in and of itself, yeah. but, I mean, that... You know, disincentivizes a lot of people in in our generation and even previous generations to try and take steps to change it because it's so incredibly difficult to get those things changed that it's. Sometimes it seems like it would take a miracle to, to make these things actually happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm. I don't know. I think that often there's a binary in this conversation where either you believe the electoral college should exist or it shouldn't, right? But like we I think there's a lot of things we could do to reform it in a way that most Americans would totally approve of and support. Yes. Yeah
1: and but those those are not in 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 the popular light. No. And they're not those, in the popular conversation. Not, yeah, people are not talking about fixing it. It's either it's you know, it's these extremes where it's like either we have it or we don't. Well, and this you is, and this is that's ridiculous.
0: This is one of the the problem I mean, this is one of the problems I mean, it's so difficult to change the constitutional system that's been set up that we just accept it as stasis, right? So we we just cope Every four years, with the outcomes from the Electoral College, without having serious conversations about the fact that this could be better, this could be more reflective of what we as American
1: citizens because want. Because it's always been, it's always been that way. Yeah, you know, and people are people are comfortable with that. There's, you know, people automatically, naturally have an aversion to change, and I understand that. But we need to start taking Not steps. Because you're a libertarian. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Change and hope. <laughs> Maybe, okay. maybe, uh, but I think there's definitely something to be said with the way in which our you know our system of media is set up. The information that people get, that a lot of people are just so disenfranchised from the system for not only just voting but believing that they have a voice. And I don't mean to sound sappy or generic. But it, it really is important in a system where people vote in elected officials, where people feel like their voice matters, and right now it doesn't. And I feel like the, that's why the electoral college I feel is like, ultimately yeah, failing. It, in its it honestly
0: comes down to like whether you actually believe that democracies function most effectively. When a majority of the people actually feel enfranchised when they turn out to the polls, when they're involved in local,
1: state, and federal politics. I mean, there are a couple other standards, but but as far as our system goes, that's that is the yeah. main measure because you know, we, we don't have the fears of you know corruption and like people being voted in just because they bought off the right people. Which I mean, some people believe that we do, but I, I'd like to believe uh, from the evidence has been presented to me, and that's available yeah, yeah. to the public, that there's no true reason to believe that that's happening. I don't know, have you
0: read Bar News? There's some <laughs> scary shit happening out there, man. Man,
1: I hate that guy so much. <laughs> yep, yeah. Wait, that's something uh... we can agree on. Steve Bannon for Chief Strategist, right? 2016. <laughs> absolutely. Well, well, let's move on to the two-party system. Yeah, I feel like absolutely. That, that is another part but, but that to, affects the Electoral College. To
0: put a final cap uh, on this discussion of yeah. the Electoral College, I think that like... It is obvious that our system of government and the system by which we appoint people to the federal office, and in this case the highest office, is deeply dysfunctional when a state that has a fraction of the population of a much larger state has three times the weight in determining the outcome. I mean that in and of itself is a reason
1: not not to count the We've fact. provided many,
0: but I think that like we don't often just reckon with that and think about how fucked up that is.
1: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely terrible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And,
1: and and you know, in a system where our our lives, the amount of taxes that we pay, regulation that's put on, you know, just just basic things like what type of cars we can drive, etc., is based on something that's not even reflecting the popular vote to any real extent at all. Yeah, and I don't mean mob rule, but I mean you know the majority of Americans feeling like. The people that are elected are going to try and make change because, you know, you this this kind of segues into the two-party system where, you know, you look at our current system now, it's a false dichotomy of belief. Would you not agree? Like, I think that we've set up our system where it's, it's, it's a ridiculous dichotomy to say, okay, either you're on the left or you're on the right. I mean, granted, sure, some moderate candidates get voted in, but that's only when they pander to certain portions of voters that
0: come out. Yeah, or when they're just, you know, really good at their job and popular, like Bernie Sanders winning, you know, multiple elections cycles. Of oh, sure, I'm not saying that Senator that's inherently
1: the case. Sure, no, I know there, what you There mean. are exceptions yeah, yeah. to every rule, but if you look at every major election, even in the last 20 years, yeah. that that is the case. Yeah,
0: and, and I mean, like, for me... What it comes down to is the fact that we force people to organize along these rigid ideological lines, but there's not even ideological consistency. No, definitely not on either side. Yeah, people are just divided in ways that are totally arbitrary, right? So just be like, there's some issues, I think, in which the division between the parties is pretty clear and obvious and understandable. You know, like the Republican and Democratic parties are divided on what they think the proper role of government is in terms of the redistribution of wealth. That makes sense to me, you know, because it reflects two completely different mentalities, right? Republicans more or less believe that people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps and that we should try to help the free market economy work in a way that will give people opportunities to help themselves, right? Whereas the, you know, many in the Democratic Party believe that government has a more significant role than that. And helping people pull
1: themselves up. Yeah,
0: it, in assisting people and in potentially compensating in certain ways for the failures. And I, I think that's that's system.
1: really explained uh, very adequately by Bill Clinton's 1996 welfare reform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they were taking the perspective where they believed that you know people living off the government teat, if you will, uh, that, that inherently is that I will not. Thing. I think that's offensive. No, I'm just okay. kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Free the nipple. Continue. Free the nipple. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that 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 is ultimately a a really good example of when this started to happen, especially on you know the left, where they decided that you know they wanted to help people get out of poverty, which in and of itself I don't think anybody would disagree with that premise. But ultimately, where the party lines are drawn is how we achieve that goal. And I think there's a lot of ideological inconsistency with both parties. On the Republican Party, you know they believe in personal liberty when it comes to you know things like gun rights. When it comes to economic freedoms, you know, property rights, things like that. But when it transfers over to social issues, yeah, you know, such as you know, like whether or not you're pro-life, pro-choice, etc., they're really not in favor of that. And the same on the left, same on the left, they're very much for social liberties. Yeah, they're very much for you know, pro-gay marriage, etc. But when it comes to economic freedoms. They're, they're less inclined to implement policy based on that. And I think, feel like it, it confuses a lot of people and causes a lot of frustration just because it's a false dichotomy of belief. There are these two sides that ultimately have contradictions inside of their own ideology and yet, those are the only choices that we have. Yeah, it's it,
0: it's it's this paradox, right? Where where the, with the, you know, Republican Party, you want government ostensibly to be limited, but not so limited that they can't tell you who you can marry, right? Or not so limited that we can't be extremely hawkish and involved in the affairs of other countries. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and, and know, I
1: completely agree with that. Yeah, you know, and and I think in this podcast, you know, we're we're really trying to be objective about yeah. you know both parties, like we both. to different ideological beliefs about what we think government's role is and what we think the government should do in regards to certain issues. But I think it can be commonly agreed that the two-party system, both sides, have substantial flaws in their ideology. I
0: totally agree. And I think that it's worth saying for the record that one of the reasons why our critique of the two-party system extends to a critique of our system um, of government is because... It doesn't allow for anything other than the two party system, which is what's been proven over time, you
1: know. That, and that's kind of manifested itself in closed primaries, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the ability of the inability of people to be able to really vote and affect change in primaries if they're not related to one of the two parties. Exactly. The, I mean, closed
0: primaries just make me so totally incensed, right? Because you should still be able to vote in a way that determines like, the outcome of who's going to represent your state or who's going to be president without registering with one of the ma- two major parties, right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I
1: mean, I feel like that in and of itself undermines the American idea that everyone should have a voice, that there should be an equality of ideas and we should be able to dish those ideas out and whichever one is best that benefits the American people should be the one that is implemented. Exactly. Exactly.
0: I, and I think that what it comes down to is on a state level, it's just the parties have too much control. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Right. The fact that you, I mean, obviously primaries are not official elections, right? They're just determining who is going to be nominated to run for either major party. But at the same time, they're very significant,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at even this last election, I feel like it's a prime example not to, you know, just press on button issues that are, you know, going on right now. Press those buttons, dude. Absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, on, on a, just a logical level, yeah. if you look at what's happening right now, do we really think that Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump were the best candidates that both sides could present? I, I feel like that no. in and of itself is an argument against the two party system. But I mean, depending on your political let's, views let's, and let's, what you let's, think. Let's, let's make sure, it could though, change.
0: that, yeah, I've t- I mean, as much as I agree with you, Brent, let's make sure that our perspective here is not too limited or contemporary, right? I think this oh, sure. has been a problem for a long time. Oh,
1: absolutely. But that, that, that is that is an example that I think a lot yeah. of the listeners can identify with.
0: I totally agree. Um, because ostensibly, most of them voted in the last election. Hopefully. And if you didn't, fuck you. <laughs> I didn't either, so fuck myself, I guess. Um, but uh, no, I think, though, that... Masochism.
1: Like,
0: yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> the closed primary problem is is, for me, extremely frustrating. And very few states have open primaries. Very few. It's ridiculous. Which is like, and it's one of those, it it creates a binary where you are literally incentivized to assemble along the lines of the two-party system, because if you don't, you won't be able to vote in primaries in a lot of states. And your
1: vote won't matter even, you know, many more than... In many ways, in
0: terms of the incentive structures of our elections... You are punished for not being a member of one of the two parties. Absolutely, in a, in a variety of ways, and that to me is a particular source of frustration and evidence that we just our system of government does not allow for the kind of plurality of beliefs that should thrive in a democracy.
1: Absolutely, and not, not even on just on the primary level, but if you look at you no, know, gen- the general election, yeah. it really prevents voter specialization. People yeah. cannot vote really for what they believe should should happen. You know, they, they cannot actually vote for, you know, specific policies. I mean, a lot of states, you know, provide propositions and things like that. Sure. But when you look at the actual candidates, the people that are going to be making these executive decisions, since there's a dichotomy of belief, a lot of issues are just not discussed yeah. at all. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like a lot of people are are not their voice is not being heard in regards to a lot of issues that, that should be on, on the national floor, that people should be talking about this yeah. in, in our federal election debates.
0: It's one of those things where our fear of factions rising up to control the majority of the vote has prevented like the existence of factions that like actually represent interests that are like local to people and Absolutely. matter to them and specific to their experience of you know living in this country.
1: And granted, people should get involved on a local level. A lot of people only care about the national election, which, if you think about it, that that election process has the least amount of impact on an individual's lives. And but gonna, that's a whole other. Category. We're going to
0: talk about the problem of you know information and voters not being informed enough later on. But I think though that like what we can all agree on is that you know serious efforts are not made to inform people about their role in local elections, and to the extent that they are again, parties have a ton of control, right? And local government has a ton of control. Like the problem, I mean, we both live in Texas, right? We are hailing, this podcast is coming to you from North Texas. Um, One of the biggest epidemics in our state uh, in terms of the evidence of parties interfering too much um, is gerrymandering, right? Which is, for those of you who aren't familiar, basically a system by which you could take an area that has like, you know, let's say... There's 60% Republicans and 40% Democrats, and you could redraw the districts in such a way that you have, like, three Democratic districts and two Republican districts, right? So you could totally change the reflection of, like, you know, what the majority of people in that district believe by just redrawing it in a really fucked up way. Um, That's a huge problem in Texas, and one that legally, state and local governments are not really held accountable for.
1: And and it's, it's ultimately their right. Yeah, they, they definitely can do that, but but we're here to discuss whether or not they should. No. And whether or not that, that actually reflects yeah. what it truly means to live in a representative democracy. No, but
0: to bring this back to the two party system, the only reason why you would need to gerrymander districts in this way is to try to rearrange voters or representations of voters in such a way that allows one of the two major parties to take a lead in a state or to maintain control over a state and so you just end up with a lot of people feeling disenfranchised right not just feeling disenfranchised actually being disenfranchised right
1: and i think a lot of the the blame for that can be you know attributed to media sources now i'm not one of those people that uh, believes that either candidate was paying off, say, you know, CNN or MSNBC or what Fox What are you talking news. about? CNN was in the pocket of the Clintons the entire time, <laughs> I mean, a Do lot you lot of read Red News
0: I just mentioned it five minutes ago?
1: I mean, you know, I, I think you remember this. he uh, was <laughs> posted a Facebook status as, you know, a joke about our, you know, our current election. And one of the people that commented on it took it very seriously. And he said that, you know, Hillary Clinton and, you know, Democrats ultimately have media in their Pocket, and while you know I can understand why why they would you know think that that might be true, there's ultimately no evidence of that. But also, if you look at most news sources, they're completely isolating the two-party system. They only look at either what the Republicans are doing or what the Democrats are doing. Now, occasionally, you know, some news sources uh, talked about third parties when Gary Johnson couldn't remember what Aleppo was or couldn't think of a world leader that he admired. Well that one time he talked, he described climbing Mount Everest
0: as looking up at skirt yeah. and taking a peek? Yeah. A that very was, sexualized account of his climbing d- of Mount Everest. That was disgruntling to say the least. He has said a lot of things that disgruntle
1: me. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I, I probably ideologically align with him the most because, you know, I I do have libertarian leanings. Yeah. But at the same time, the way in which he advocates them is ridiculous well, like if, he, if, 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 he has
0: absolutely if, no idea if, if donald trump is like your drunk partisan uncle right gary johnson is your weird possibly pedophilic uncle i feel like
1: that's i mean after his comments about everest i mean i,
0: that's I, I true. completely agree with you all bets are off
1: but you know back to the main it's issue it's worth saying
0: for the record i don't actually think he's a pedophile
1: yeah i mean obviously i feel like
0: i feel like i feel like we might have a know. slander lawsuit coming our way i'm sure he's a stand-up guy with yeah adult sexual partners
1: hey Gary I'm glad you're listening yeah <laughs> which I'm sure he is just <laughs> absolutely assume. but I, I think you know the, just the lack of media attention to you know local political issues yeah you know the, the lack of media attention on you know, issues that actually matter. I mean, you know, what people forget and what people don't really realize a lot of the time is that media conglomerates in the United States have become a business. They want to provide information that sells. So ultimately they're incentivized to provide sensationalist rhetoric. So I understand where a lot of, you know, the Trump supporters were coming from when they were talking about how, you know, a lot of the stuff about Donald Trump was very sensationalized. A lot of the stuff is true, granted, I I will say that when it comes to when it comes to the
0: coverage of Donald Trump like um of, of course, we should always account for media bias, but you don't have to sensationalize Donald Trump. Just quote him in his own words, and it's pretty sensational in itself. For true, the most true. part. True. Okay. I mean, I definitely agree
1: with you. I was trying. Yeah. To be moderate, no, I get you. I get but you. But like, you are right.
0: Yeah. But I think though that like that's an important point is the fact that. People do not appreciate often enough that most of the media conglomerates that they receive news from are businesses, right? Which means that, like, they are going to try to report on the things that people care the most about. Or the, the things that will, will cause the most attention by thing, th- And the thing about those things is they typically relate to the grand drama between the two parties that is happening on the national stage, whether or not any of those issues affect voters. Voters <laughs> on a local level, and Honestly, I think I think it definitely affects voters a lot. I, I think voters are affected too. <laughs> we cannot discount the degree to which they are affected. But I think that's that's worth saying, right? Is the fact that like a, the two party system has perversely co- become this kind of theater for drama, right? In a way where people are constantly following the bickering between the two parties, which is being covered without break from all of the major news sources, right? But people don't often stop to think enough about whether the issues being discussed affect them in a direct
1: way. No. Whether or not Hillary Clinton, you know... The email scandal is a perfect example yeah, of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, you probably know more about that. Yeah,
0: it's like people are so polarized, right, that the primary issue of this election originated with the fact that that a high ranking member of the executive branch used a private email server right which i think pers- which i mean those emails were leaked though i'm i'm uh, yes they were i mean i i feel like i feel like a lot of the time and of course they did not reveal anything that was particularly compromising to national security right true
1: true yeah but i think a lot of people especially on the right are really upset by the fact that she got away with that scot free i don't right yeah and also a lot of liberals and a lot of liberal politicians have kind of just scoffed it off. Which, you know, to a certain extent, there's justification for. But on the other hand, it seems like people are denying that it actually happened. No, no. there, there was anything, no, any, like... Any problem with that? Yeah, polarization of the spectrum of thinking when the two party system, either this
0: issue matters or it totally doesn't. It does matter, does not matter as nearly as much as a lot of Republican voters thought it did, and it certainly would never be. It's definitely
1: sensationalized.
0: Yes, exactly. And that's the thing, right? Is that if we had spent less time in this election talking about this email scandal, which, if we're being totally honest, is more about people's hatred and suspicion of Hillary Clinton than anything she may or may not have actually done. And if we had spent more time talking about like, litigating the issues that either candidate were running on, not only will we perhaps have had a different outcome, we would have had a better election. Yeah, and ultimately that's
1: systemic of the two-party system because exactly. you can't have somebody come in and check that and say, we need to talk about the issues. You look at any presidential debate in the last election, Really, most of it was not about real issues.
0: Yeah, but also, I mean, Brent, who decides which issues are on the national docket of conversation? Uh, the two parties, exactly, right? And that, to me, is again an indication that the two-party system has so monopolized national discourse. I definitely discourse. agree. And you know, again, we're not just here to talk about whether or not our system of government works in the way that its founders intended it to, but at the same time, yeah, because George, a lot of that's
1: become obsolete. You know, just with the contemporary society, the evolution of the economy, the evolution of society. Yes. You know, a lot of it cannot be applied in the way in which they are. I'm not a
0: constitutional originalist. I don't think the founding fathers could have envisioned, not because they weren't smart dudes, but because things change, right? What our country would become. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way they could have had that foresight. Of course. And I think people who... Try to argue for like the infallible naturalism of the Constitution. Are a little bit deluded about the forward thinking um, that went into it. I will say at the same time though that you know George Washington was forward thinking enough to warn against the particular dangers of a two party system, and look what happened. That's what we ended up with. Exactly. And so I think, you know, and to throw this question to you, Brent, are there any alternatives to this?
1: Uh, I I feel like there there are definitely without a lot just of alternatives. without
0: coming back to the old can't that we should have a parliamentary system like within a presidential system are there alternatives to this?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, if we put our heads together, I'm sure we could come up with something that's at least slightly better than this. I mean, we, we did talk about, you know, districting and we should put more regulation on that. Yeah. Um, also, we should definitely put more regulation on closing polls. Absolutely. Uh, I, I know we talked about that a little bit, uh, you know, that's, a couple that's, weeks
0: ago. That's a huge deal, right? And I think that all that originated more or less with the. I mean, it didn't originate with this. It's been a problem for a while. But um, in when the Supreme Court recently kind of gutted the Voting Rights Act in the case of Shelby County versus Holder, they basically said because previously under Section Five, states and parties and local parties would have to like approve decisions to close polling centers. Right? Uh, they would have to get those decisions approved on a national level. Right? Yeah. Um, the, Supreme Court ruled to give you know states more power, more freedom, and more discretion in that regard. And what that culminated in, in the last election, was the closure of a ton of polls, particularly in southern states like Texas and Arizona. In fact, in Arizona in particular, Republican officials in Phoenix's Maricopa County, I think I'm pronouncing that correct. If you happen to live in Maricopa County, in Arizona, please correct me.
1: Hashtag get fucked. Yeah, but so
0: in (laughs) Phoenix, (laughs) the Republican uh, party there, um, and by the way, it's worth mentioning that this county is one of the largest in the state, reduced the number of polling places by 70% from 2012 to 2016. So right after the Voting Rights Act was reinterpreted by the Supreme Court, polling centers, because Maricopa County tends to be fairly democratic, went from 200 to 60, right? Wow. Which is crazy, right? That is a lot. The fact is, parties are the ones who tend to have the most disproportionate control on a state level over where voting booths are opened up, over how many people have access to, and they can make arbitrary decisions about whether or not to close voting centers. And what that means is that if you happen to live in a battleground county in a certain state, right, you might... They can just close the polls. They can close a lot of the polls. And what happened in Arizona is that there was a lot of testimonies from people who tried to go to the polls and had to wait in line for up to three hours. Brent, would you vote if you had to wait for three hours to vote?
1: Uh, since I'm an upstanding citizen Fuck Of course that. I would That's like, I know, I'm just kidding, that's of course not, of that's obscene Nobody can that's take like off that Lord... amount of time Even with work, people have lives that's People like... can't take that amount of time yeah. to vote Even with the importance of the election Like That's just unreasonable to expect of the populace Yeah, and, and like the
0: uh, Leadership Conference for Civil Rights I think it's worth crediting them, because they did some really good journalistic work on this They surveyed a lot of different Counties that were previously covered by Section 5 under the Voting Rights Act And were no longer after the whole Decision and they found that out of the 381 counties they studied, 165 of them, which is 43%, reduced their voting locations in dramatic ways. Right? And it's no coincidence that in most of the counties they surveyed, you had, you know, majority parties trying to close voting centers in minority districts. Yeah, which which vast majority of the time vote left. Yeah, but you know, like if we're talking about you know a three hour wait because there's only a couple voting booths and everybody's turning out right, that's like Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings movie length waiting time to vote. People should be given incentives to vote. They should be encouraged. It should be expedited. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm almost, you know, I if, mean, if, if I didn't believe, you know, in personal liberty so much, I'd almost be inclined to say that voting should be mandatory, but that's a whole other can of worms.
0: To come, to like step back a second though, right, we, we have given the parties so much power, and we have given states, right, who, depending on which state we're talking about, a major, uh, one of the two parties controls so much power that they can make these kind of arbitrary, discriminatory decisions about where people should have the most access To voting centers, right, which seems to me to have like a very direct effect on the outcome of elections, because you can either encourage or discourage people. And honestly,
1: personally, I'm I'm always the first to advocate, you know, Tenth Amendment rights, federalism, the idea that states should be able to regulate what they want within state lines but this seems to be since it's you know affects things on a national level i'm not entirely sure that i agree with the supreme court's decision to allow them to do this because i feel like a lot of politicians strategically used this in order to you know close out like you said minorities and ultimately can change the entire outcome of an election and skew it a lot of people only think that, you know, elections can be skewed when someone intentionally, like, miscounts the votes or something like that, very cinematic movie perspective on, like, how things would go down. But even small changes like this, like where people can vote, can drastically affect, absolutely you know, election outcomes.
0: Yeah, and I think the federal government here is uniquely positioned to force states to be accountable, Right. Because if we're talking about, you know, a, a state in which a party has a majority hold, right, they're just going to do whatever they can to try to diminish the influence of the minorities on the outcome of the election, which just creates a kind of stasis where one of the two parties just maintains
1: control over And time. so let, let me ask you this, Amos. Yeah. Like, we talk about all these things happening, but, you know, in order to truly solve a problem, you need to look at its core cause. Okay. And, and what do you think is causing... You know these different things to happen, like you know seg- redistricting, you know uh, taking away polls, not allowing open primaries, different things like that. What do you think is really the driving force behind these that? decisions?
0: Need to be made by organizations, right, that are not partisan. Which, of course, seems unrealistic in the two party system, right? Which kind of comes back to our premise, right? But I think that, like, there should be, like, public institutions that hold state and local governments and parties within them accountable to make sure that they're trying to include and enfranchise as many people as possible.
1: And I definitely agree. I mean, for a long time, I've always been an advocate of the argument that I think that, you know, campaign finance reform is one of the most important policies that we look at as a generation.
0: So let's let's talk about that. So campaign finance reform is obviously an issue that was complicated by the Supreme Court's decision, you know, Definitely. a few years ago, um, in which they decided not to limit it as extremely. But what role do you think campaign
1: finance reform plays in this? I think it, it applies to almost every policy because, okay. you know, it, it, it's, it's really hard to actually get campaign finance reform passed because it's inherently against human nature to disadvantage yourself. These people are getting paid. Yeah. You know, they're getting paid to represent certain ideas. And that money is either fueling their next campaign or it's lining their pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important problem that that affects today's democracy, because that means that politicians have less of an incentive to actually advocate for what people want. And instead, they're just advocating for corporations or things like that, not to sound like, no no, you know, no. A corporation hating hippie. I'm a libertarian. I love business. But ultimately, this, this problem has really gotten out of hand. And I think, though, I mean, it, it is worth saying that I think on
0: the campaign finance level, uh, reform is obviously very needed. Beyond that, though, I think what people don't often talk about enough is once people get into office, particularly in Congress, and I will say that we've been talking a lot through this podcast about Elections, You know, whether or not people have access to polling centers, whether they feel enfranchised, whether they, you know, their vote actually matters, right? But all of that aside, once people actually get into office, Congress seems to me at this point to be really primarily controlled
1: by lobbying interests, right? and i think that the question i don't know if we can necessarily claim not that controlled. it's primarily controlled okay. by them but it is definitely very heavily influenced by them that's undeniable i will say
0: i will say i was speaking hyperbolically but it's worth saying that like it's not like our system of government doesn't work right it's a question of who it works for and it definitely always over the past you know couple decades works in favor of certain lobbying organizations right uh, and what is the reason for that
1: uh, I mean, I mean, ultimately, I just think I think it's just human nature. Like people yeah. want to have stability in income, and they want to be rich, and they want to be powerful. And in today's society, money is power. So
0: I do think that lobbying organizations are the only constituency that Congress like always listens to and works in favor of. And like a good point of evidence for this is the NRA, and I know this is um, an issue people have talked about a lot, right? But how is it? That background checks for gun purchases, a measure of gun control, that commanded north of sixty percent popular support, right, in, according to polling data, didn't even pass a democratically controlled Senate.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely insane. I've, yeah. I, but you know, you you look at the infor- you look at the data, you look at the information, and the NRA is definitely lining these people's pocketbooks. It's it's indisputable. But, you know, I I personally am a gun rights advocate, but I, I, you know, I I obviously advocate, well, I guess not obviously, but I advocate for, you know, background checks. I think that there definitely needs to be steps taken to avoid psychopathic people who want to kill everyone from getting a gun. I, I feel like, you know, to a certain extent, you can only justify... Uh, you know, things with self defense so far, and we need to have some type of regulation. And I think you're right. The NRA is a perfect example of this, where campaign finance via this organization, the NRA, has really completely skewed the national conversation, has completely skewed what people are voting on in yeah. Congress, and has ultimately you know, I think negatively affected us. And
0: campaign finance definitely plays a role. Although, uh, to uh, invoke a personal anecdote, when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to spend a few weeks over a few summers in the state capital in Texas. In, uh, when I was involved in a program called Patriot Academy. Ah,
1: Patriot Academy. <laughs>
0: yes. And it's it worth saying that I'm not saying that to promote the quality of this organization. Hopefully I think not. it's very partisan. Um, but I was sort of found myself in the nexus of Texas republicanism in uh Capitol Hill in Austin. And um one of the things that I heard a lot of people who work in the state house there say is that lobbyists play an incredibly important role in the legislative process because they give much needed information to legislators on how they should vote, right? So, like, what we don't often consider enough is that if you're like a representative or a senator on the state or federal level, there are a lot of things that you have to vote on without having like a pre existing opinion about or actually any knowledge of, right? And one thing that lobbying organizations do very effectively is they give like summaries to legislators, like how they should vote, and they try to like inform
1: them and guide them, right? Where the issue though arises is the fact that we don't have limits on how much money they can give them yeah. to vote in that. And I, I honestly don't think there's any problem with that. If we had limits on like the amount of money that you know, any individual lobbyist organization can yeah. give to government officials where it doesn't necessarily completely sway their vote, but they want to provide the information, this freedom of information ultimately leads to better decisions. And I don't think anybody can really argue against that. Yeah. But where the problem lies is not in whether or not they're giving them information and that allows them to vote in a more educated manner it's more of that regardless of their own personal decision and the decisions of their constituents, they're voting in a certain way to advance themselves via personal gain monetarily. No, yeah, exactly. We have a very like swelled bureaucratic
0: system of government, right, where there are a lot of resources that are being allocated to a lot of different places. And there's a huge opportunity because of the gap of knowledge that both voters and congressmen have about the things they're voting about, there's this huge gap of knowledge that special interests can just fill, right? which means that they actually, because they tend to be very smart about this, can control the allocation of resources in a way that allows them to just get a bunch of spending earmarked for their shit. And so that's what I mean when I say that our system of government most often works in those people's favor, the people who have the ear right, of the people we've elected into office in a way that we as voters just don't. Yeah,
1: which is is perverse.
0: Yes. It's dysfunctional. It's fucked up. It's an indication that our system is just not working in the way it was intended to. And I think there's a lot of solutions to that problem. There's a lot of ways to cut out the influence of lobbying on Congress. There's a lot of ways to reform and
1: eliminate campaign finance. But the issue is with that idea...
0: Established incentive
1: structures. Yeah, exactly. Like these people, congressmen, yeah. would have to vote to, you know, decrease their own income for the public good. They're not going and to do that. And they're not going to do that. I mean, you know, I, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I am the most well. I, avid I, I
0: say they. That there,
1: there are many advocates of campaign finance reform who have run oh. for office. Oh, Obviously, sure. Obviously, we're generalizing. Just for sure. The right I here. mean, uh, yeah, yes. But in the national conversation, and even on on a state level, it's not brought up a lot. I mean, nope. that was one great thing that you know, Bernie. Sanders brought up and even Donald Trump brought up. I mean, if you look at his hundred day plan, I mean that was one of the first things he wants to do in his hundred days. Now, that's one of the least likely things I would that it, will actually yeah. go down with his with his presidency. But I mean, these things are now, you know, coming into the national light to a certain extent. We don't want to downplay that, but it's just really hard to see how. these things would ever get achieved. And I will say, on the note of Donald Trump, just because
0: I want to talk about this for a second, it is worth saying that he is sort of a unique case because he didn't need... like His campaign was sort of independently financed. I mean, he did get a lot of money from the Republican Party. Sure. But, like... Eventually. Eventually, right? But he didn't really need a lot of the, like... He didn't have to go to, like, Shelby Adelson or the Koch brothers and, like, get their funding, right? Yeah. Which means that he... Based on this election, doesn't have any particular personal incentive, right, to keep campaign finance alive. Now that said, now that he is president and leader of the Republican Party, I think that he's going to have second thoughts about that. And I also think that a lot of the people—it's well, not even his unilateral decision. No, it's not. I mean, obviously, and it would actually at this point require uh, an overturning of the Supreme Court decision, which is probably not going to happen, especially if he gets his way in terms of appointments. Um, but I think it's worth saying that a lot of Donald Trump's friends would have less influence on the outcome of elections if campaign finance was actually reformed. And so I think there's very little likelihood that he would actually advocate for that in like a serious way within his office as president.
1: I mean, I don't know. I would like to give him. I would like to analyze how serious a politician is about a certain decision. That, that's true. In the amount that they talk about it, or you know, the actions that they take. I mean, he presented yeah. it on a national and an international level. Uh, that that's his plan. That's what he wants to do in his first 100 days. Well, but the thing to, is, to is be, like, I don't think that, that will actually yeah, happen. I think that's so absurd. It's not going to happen. And he happen.
0: has talked about lobbying. What does he propose to do about lobbying? Uh,
1: I think uh, he has a couple of different policies. I mean, if you, if you look at his 100-day plan, he talks about how he wants to prevent people in government for five years after being in government from being able to work for a lobbyist organization or even to lobby for a foreign country. Uh, which I thought was interesting. I didn't even realize that that was really an issue it is, uh, until I looked into it. I it mean, is interesting.
0: It's worth saying, and I, and I, mean, I think John Dickerson over at the Slate Political Gab Fest put a good point on this, that that doesn't actually target like most of the problem. You know, like a lot of the people lobbying for. But it's a step.
1: I think. I think it's a good step.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly agree. Although, again, there's, it's not likely that it would ever get passed. Uh, and it's not something he could pass by But, that, I mean, order. that is
1: something that, you know, uh, Donald Trump isn't all bad. I mean, he's mostly bad. But, no, no, no. Know, no, I totally agree. And mean, I want to find... There are some policies that I think are, are easily easy to advocate for being good for the country.
0: We should try to find as much as we can the silver linings and the people's decision here. Uh, but or trying a plurality to remove ourselves from NAFTA is
1: not one of those things. No, I totally Definitely agree with not. you on that one.
0: That is uh,
1: such a... T- I'm... I don't want to. I don't want to digress.
0: But honestly, fuck Canada and Mexico. Why do we want to hang out with those people? We should just get out of this. Yeah, it's deal not like they're can. our
1: closest trade partners. No. and give us stuff dirt cheap. No, definitely not. That does not help like Canada is our second largest trading partner. Yeah, uh, not that important. Gosh. But, I mean, you know, kind of getting back on topic, yeah. you know, I, I think we've talked about a lot of things. You know, we talked about the Electoral College, we talked about the two-party system, we talked about campaign finance, and I think all of these collectively kind of represent how our democracy and in, in its purpose and its original function and what it was trying to do to encapsulate the sense of the people, as Hamilton would say, or, you know, just advocate for what people actually want is substantially lacking.
0: I agree. And, and actually, I, I totally agree. And to return for a second to the two-party system, I think one unique feature of our presidential system is that the majority party, right, in this case, right, after this election, the Republican Party now has majority control over the House and Senate. Now, granted, in the Senate, that's a very thin majority. It's marginal. Still, right, they will be able by majority to pass a lot of bills. Uh, the difference between what happens when a party is voted into office in a presidential system like we have and a parliamentary system like the UK has, is that the embattled opposing party actually has the ability to like actively um, try to make government not work in the way that it should. The Republican Party did this for a long time, right? Yeah. Like, trying to... I know, mean, you know, the, trying the budget to, shortfalls, shutting down budget, the government, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, like, trying to shutting down the government because they couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act over just some a lot of arbitrary things that had nothing to do with the fact that we should keep the lights on, you know? I mean, this is yeah. the problem. Obstructionism, that opportunity always exists, especially with the filibuster loophole existing as well. And I think that for a long time on a federal level, and I would say even on a state and local level, that I'm well, though I'm less willing to say that, you know, across the board, our government has not been acting according to the people's interests. Definitely
1: not. Definitely yeah. not. I feel like that, that has been conclusively proven. And we've all just kind of fallen into this, you know, almost election coma where we're like, well, there's nothing we can really do about it. But the the thing is, and, and what I would really like to convey is that there is something that we can do about it. I mean a lot of people, you know, kind of view our country as as you know, something that we 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 cannot change. There's so much opposition to all these things that we need to do. But that's the i type of you know ideology. That's the perspective that allows these things to foster and grow these problems in our country. And we need to start taking action. You know, a lot of people claim that millennials are lazy and that you know we're all special snowflakes and we all just want a handout. But I think that we just want but equal ladies, treatment. But this
0: is a safe space, Brent. I feel very triggered, and I just want to say for the record, we're not comfortable <laughs> right now
1: absolutely, but but, but, in all seriousness, though, people can make a difference if 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 a lot of people write their congressmen, that's something that that cannot be truly ignored.
0: yeah, but then again, you know, i and I hate to be one of these revolutionary abolitionist people, right? Oh, I love that shit, but i <laughs> I know you do. Uh, I question I'm saying this as someone who who is very interested in potentially going into politics. I question the degree to which, as private citizens, We can actually affect change within our system, you know, as it
1: currently stands. What do you think about that? I I don't know. I I I feel like that's a very fatalistic perspective. It is, and I I don't don't necessarily. I mean, sure, but the the thing is, is like I don't think that that on its face is a viable statement because if enough people decide to make the change, it will happen. I agree. Like regardless of the flaws, I mean, we've we've gone through this whole podcast talking about how. You know, we have all these flaws with our, our democracy, but that's because we've allowed it to fester and become this way. We have the ability to make change. Exactly.
0: And I think, you know, it was Alexis de Tocqueville who for me has just been a guiding voice through this whole thing. I mean, he said a couple of things that I want to highlight. One of the things that he highlighted is America's greatness comes from not from its superior enlightenment, but from its ability to repair its faults. Right. And I think over the next 10 years, we're really going to have to take a test to see whether that's actually true, because we're starting to confront a lot of the failures and shortfalls of our system of government. And we've confronted them before. Right. But in a way that I think feels kind of final. It's all the baby boomers fault. I mean, I agree. I want to blame my parents for this, don't you? I mean I, I definitely don't want to but it's
1: definitely true.
0: <laughs> I'm being facetious. And if you haven't caught on, I do that a lot. But I think that it I mean to Tocqueville's point still stands, right? If our country is truly great, its greatness lies in our ability to be aware of and to correct for the faults in our system or the yeah, faults in our stars. And we
1: definitely we definitely can do that. Or the faults in our stars. Okay.
0: All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, man. Brent, so let's, for the listeners, summarize what we've talked about today.
1: I mean, ultimately, we've talked about, you know, a few different things. We talked about the Electoral College, like we said earlier. You know, we talked about the two-party system. We talked about lobbying and campaign finance, which we personally believe uh, that's not the, the limit at which we can examine the problems of our country. Like, we know that there are a lot of other problems yeah. existing. We spent, yeah. But we, 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 these
0: are the most prevalent. We have talked a lot about the systems by which we elect people to office, right? We didn't even get to foreign policy or any of the other issues no, that not. I'm sure we would like to talk about. The point is, assuming that we believe that our system of government was originally intended to operate in such a way that would improve the lives of and represent the interest of a majority of the people. That's its function. It has ceased to do
1: that; is in a state of dysfunction by, I think, any reasonable characterization. And and I think what what we ultimately are trying to advocate here is not just to say that the world is terrible and have a very fatalistic perspective on just everything is bad. You know, there's nothing we can do. We can do something. We can make a change, and we ultimately can fix our democracy in America and reestablish, you know, greatness uh, and make America great again. Oh wow,
0: fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I have to say. I will say on on a closing note that I think the reason why I Remain optimistic about the future of his country is because I think its people are great and diverse and warm and welcoming, and that all of those things are true despite the fact that we have very little ability to affect change through our systems of government, right? Which is a, like entirely the point, right? Our system of democracy has proven, I think, to be a failed experiment. But that doesn't mean our country is. That doesn't mean our society is. That doesn't mean the diversity that we all appreciate is. It just means that we have to find a way to make our systems of government as good as the society that we enjoy.
1: Absolutely. And that, and that means compromise. That means compromise. That means systemic change. And, and that means break. people need to actually take an active role in, in shaping our government and in shaping the policies that we are trying to you know implement.
0: And to end on a cooperative, bipartisan note... I think one thing that members of both parties can agree on is that the system is fucked and that it needs to be changed. Absolutely. So Absolutely. with that said, we are going to conclude this first episode. Uh, thank you for allowing us to explain our reasoning for why our system of government, American democracy, is a failed experiment. From both of us here at Allow Me to Explain, I've been Amos Chapman. And I'm Brent Pinera. And we will see you next time.